Welcome to the British History Channel and to our latest historian interview. My name is Philippa Lacey Brawl and welcome back if you are a returner and welcome for the first time if you are new here. Thank you for checking out the channel and check out the other videos and interviews that we have as well. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. But today I am talking to Dr Susie Edge. She's the presenter of the Warts and All podcast and author of a new book, Mortal Monarchs, A Thousand Years of Royal Deaths. Now, Susie is a historian and a medical doctor. So she trained first as a molecular cell biologist before moving to clinical medicine. She went on to work as a junior doctor in a variety of medical specialities, including infectious diseases, haematology and trauma and orthopaedic surgery. She's recently completed an MLIT in modern history, feeding her fascination for the history of the human body and the history of medicine. So she's always, and who's not actually, on the lookout for gory historical details. She loves telling stories of how we have treated our human bodies in life and in death and does so very successfully on her podcast, over her social media channels and in her book. Mortal Monarchs is Susie's first book. It was published in 2022 and it's available worldwide from the book depository. She's also just announced that her second book, Vital Organs, all about body parts uh, that have made history, so that's going to be very interesting, is going to be published in September 2023, so this year. Now, as usual, members of my British History Patreon club have submitted their own questions for Susie, which I will put to her after the main interview. That section makes up the extended ad-free version of this episode, which members of my Patreon can access. If you're already a patron, check out the details. Um, when that comes out, it will come out a week before everyone else gets it. If you're not already a patron, then that's just one of the Many Benefits Book Club, which is starting very soon, is another one. Um, but we have a whole list of, uh, of history lover benefits including putting your own questions to future guests as well. That's another one. So have a look uh, at www.patreon.com forward slash British history and join in if you think you would like it. Okay, so let's get on with today's interview. This is going to get gory. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, um, Susie, welcome to the British History Channel. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me to to come and have a chat. No, I'm really excited about this because actually, I I feel bad um, admitting this, but until um, Estelle Perron, um, who I think we both mutually know, posted something about something you were doing just before Christmas, I hadn't come across um, your work. Started listening to your podcast got completely hooked then you mentioned you've got a book so got your book read the book and then obviously contacted you and said would you do an interview so I'm, I'm really really excited you can probably tell so I've given everyone a bit of a brief introduction um about you and your work already but would you mind telling us in your own words a little bit about you and what you do yeah so I started out as a molecular biologist and it was a bit uh it was all a bit test GB for me so I thought I want to speak to people and I went off and studied medicine but um, after years of coming in and out of different training programs and, and having children I was quite disillusioned actually and this was a few years ago this wasn't even now during the problems that we see now uh, and I, I felt like I wanted to learn to read 
research and write and, and read, if you like, in a, in a different way to the, the sciencey stuff that I'd grown up with. And I always had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about the fact that I didn't get to study history because when you decide to you're going to be a doctor, you have to give all those things up and you have to, um, you know, in terms of studying, you have to put those to one side for a bit. And so years later, I went back and did a master's in history and I just fell in love with it. And uh, and I thought I need to bring these two interests together because a lot of people talk about the history of medicine. There are there are medical historians, if you like, out there. But I just wanted to look at the history of the human body and how we treated it over the years, not just not just in life in terms of treatment in medicine, but in death as well. How we felt about it and how we use it in so many ways. Mm. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Well, it's very I think anyone who comes from a discipline into history adds something way more really than someone who comes from history and tries to explain stuff so even you obviously with medical but even people who do I say even sorry but people who do like the living history the the costumes and sorry clothing and things like that and it's like oh yeah all this this narrative that we've heard before that actually can't quite work because here's some actual factual evidence for it so anyway we'll get we'll get into some stuff so um there's something about the physical body, all the things that go wrong with it that is fascinating, obviously in and of itself. But it becomes clear, I think, when you look into history that um, all those things that can go wrong with the body, whether it's through nature, misadventure or malice, is a real leveller. Because we're obviously looking at, you know, we're looking at history. We can look at people of all social classes and that real leveller, that came through quite strongly in your book. Because um, obviously in Mortal Monarchs, you're looking at, how each of the English and subsequently British monarchs met their end. Um, the majority, pretty, pretty in a, in a pretty undignified way, it has to be said. So they're majestic in life, and then death did them many of them no favors whatsoever. So I want to start off with asking you about your book, and then I want to get into some gore, if that's all right. So, <laughs> Absolutely. So listeners, <laughs> have been warned. We will be. We will be. De- I, I'm going to ask them. Probably quite disgusting questions. So, first of all, how did the idea for Mortal Monarchs come about for the book? It came almost through my children because I've got a couple of girls. They're teens now, but they grew up loving horrible histories. And they, uh, I think, you know, obviously encouraged by their mum. And um, they they would, <laughs> out and about, it would be really geeky. If, if a number came up or a date or something, we would say, so who was on the throne? Because they were really good at that. So they'd tell me. But after a while, it got quite dull because they, they always knew the answer. So who was on the throne in 1415? And they'd throw me out to Henry V. And I'm like, oh, it's too easy. Um, so I started saying really silly things like, and how did they die? And um, and this became a silly thing. You don't know, get funny looks in coffee shops when I have that discussion with the kids. And then I just thought, you know what? There are so many good stories here. Like, every, as you say, every single one of them seems to have this wonderful, um, either gory or, or, or mysterious or, you know, just there's something about their death that was really fascinating. But also, I really wanted to write about the human body and how we die and there are lots of different ways you can die and, and how the body reacts, to, in my view, is, is fascinating. And essentially for me, I, this was a book about how we die, but I used all of the monarchs to explain the different things because they had such good stories. And when you when you said that they were a leveller, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. 
that you know the human body disease and death is a leveler but we didn't have such good stories coming from anywhere else you know obviously the, the monarchs were written about um true or false they were written about so that's that's the stories that i used and put them all together um and as soon as i as soon as i went out to people and said what do you think about this idea there was a resounding yeah sounds that sounds fun uh, so uh, that's where it came from Ah, I, I yeah, horrible histories has got a lot to answer for. For it's fantastic. Big, big credit, <laughs> big credit. Um, yeah. So I was I was re-listening to the start of your book, and one of the points uh, last night, and one of the points you made uh, was how because you've just alluded to it there, really, when uh, monarchs' deaths are written about, um, there was sort of a it was a it wasn't f- supposed to be a factual account necessarily. It may be giving a, an opinion on the moral um sort of standing of that monarch and obviously so therefore it's biased by whoever was writing it i think that's quite an important point actually that you absolutely yeah there's there was always an agenda and you have to look at who was writing as well often the early reports were written by um monks they were written by religious men there was always a religious comment to be made so any any monarch who happened to annoy the church they ended up with a with quite a gruesome end. And then, of course, there's this idea that anybody who is a good person, anybody who is saintly will not uh, rot and will not have these disgusting, rotting, decaying stories. So William the first had one of those because that uh, they didn't like him very much. But um, uh, before him, Edward the Confessor, oh, he was a nice chap. He was just, uh, you know, he just had a stroke and, and, and died like, nicely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we won't be, won't, they won't be writing about Edward going into a mess. Of- no, 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 because it, it didn't suit the agenda. Interesting. So are there any deaths or conditions that surprised you when you were researching the book? Don't think it surprised me so much because I am particularly gory. <laughs> <laughs> but but there was one, um, you know, coming way, way forward from what we were just talking about in the, the 10, late 11th century there was one which really just it was quite hard to write, I felt, was Mary II, because I hadn't really um, I hadn't really come across before that she had died of smallpox. And it wasn't just smallpox. It was a hemorrhagic smallpox. It was really horrific. And in that disease, the the um, pustules that you get, they all um, bleed and blacken and link together. And, and she really just swelled up and turned black. It was a really I just think it was an awful death. And, um, you know, we don't really hear about that. We hear about William of Orange taking over and he was the king. But Mary just sort of seems to have been, you know, it's not really mentioned as much. Mm. And she was young, was it? She was about, she was early 30s, 32. I've got in my head. I can't quite remember, but she was yeah. young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she'd only been on the throne a couple of years, a few years. And then, of course, mm. William William was, was left on his own. Mm. And actually, in that story, so just as an aside, but the, the, their love, between them because he stayed in the room with her didn't he um presumably high risk to himself yeah it wasn't at first they they weren't that um I don't think she was that chuffed at first when she was sent off to marry William III William uh, of Orange but uh it grew that love grew and yeah he took a cot into her room and, and and stayed by her bedside when she was dying it was understood at that point that William had had smallpox before and had survived obviously and therefore he was at less of a risk of getting it what that what that was understood that's interesting so there was this understanding of kind of natural immunity to previous infection if you've had a previous infection yeah yeah so he was he was happy to go in and and hold her hand but it must have been quite something to to live through 
So what's the most mysterious or unexplainable death you came across? Any that you sort of don't really know what happened here? <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I don't think we can gloss over the, 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 the princess in the tower, can we? I mean, like, we just do not know what happened to the boys. And because of that, there have been just so many wonderful stories of survival and escape. And um, they keep cropping up all of the time. Even last year, uh, there was this idea that... Um, uh, the, the king had escaped and was living in Cornwall, living out his days there. Um, so I think you know we can't we can't gloss over that is the the, the big mystery of them all. Mm. Yes. Where do you stand on exhuming the bones while we're on to the princes? <laughs> oh my goodness, I waver horribly on this because part of me thinks you know, I'm not particularly religious, but I do understand that in a Christian burial it is expected that you are left to rest in peace. Mm. Hasn't happened for any of the monarchs at all. They've all been dug up and prodded and poked and, and examined. Um, and I and I was always very much, the, you know, just leave them alone. It's not fair. You know, they're, they're in there, just whatever. And then I started to have these questions because somebody, a friend of mine said, what if there was a knock on your door? And, well, actually, that would be an email because I live in the middle of nowhere. But what if somebody <laughs> came to you and said, we are going to make a TV program about examining the bones that we have in the tower. Uh, in, sorry, in um, Westminster Abbey that came from the tower. And it, do you want to be part of it? And I was like, yes, <laughs> instantly. I said, yeah, of course I want to be part of that. Um, and then I had to question my, I had to question my, my reasoning, my, my ethics, I suppose. I think the one thing about the, the bones that are in the tower. Ah, I keep saying the tower. They were found in the tower and put in Westminster Abbey. The thing about those bones is that we don't know who they belong to. So maybe there is, maybe maybe now that we have the technology, we do have an obligation to look at those and say, well, maybe these were someone else's children. Mm. And if so, they need to be recognised and, and buried appropriately. Um, there's only a certain amount of information you're going to get from them. Uh, That's my concern I, with yeah. it, actually, is that there's a lots of questions people seem to presume will be answered. If the yeah. bones are looked at, and I can't see how those questions would be answered, even if we could identify who they were. Absolutely, mm. chief amongst them, who's you know who killed them? Mm. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> it's not going to be written on the on the little femur. You know, no. Richard the Third was here. It's not going to be there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of information that that would still need to be um, postulated. Still need to be mm. maybe extrapolated. I don't think this. Mm. I'd still like to have a look. But, but yeah, but if the, if the call came, Susie's up for it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so are there, were there any deaths when you were researching which where we've been told one thing, but clearly, you know, on the evidence suggests that something else had or could have happened? Is there anything like that? I think the one that springs to mind there is probably Edward II. So Edward II was being held captive at Berkeley Castle by his estranged um, wife and her lover. And the, the, we've always been told throughout the years, and I was told this really young, which surprises me now. Uh, we've always been told that Edward was um, killed in a in a manner that you know everyone remembers. That he was put under something hard, like a table or a door or something, and, and he had a red hot poker shoved up his bum, and that was how he was killed. And and therefore you you wouldn't be able to have any uh, external clues <laughs> that that he'd been murdered um, unless you went to dig in, mm. and um, and that was that was how he was finished off. But there's been a lot of 
there's been a lot of chat lately, especially from another Mortimer, who wrote, who who, who looked at it and said, "Well, actually, there's a lot of things here that doesn't really add up," and and actually, the the things that were written were written decades later, and again, it was all with an agenda. So it was written um, to try and make a, a point about his homosexuality that this wasn't uh, thought of very nice that he was playing about with. Um, uh, <laughs> Gaveston and uh, Dispenser uh, and so there was a commentary on that but did it happen there's a there's always a story that people who are potentially murdered or it's not really understood how they died there's always an escape story always and his is that he escaped and he ran away and was living as a hermit in Sicily or something um nice nice work if you can get it but um so it's, it's probably unlikely, and nobody agrees now that that's actually what happened to Edward II. Having said that, it's a story that probably won't go away, because whenever I meet somebody for the first time and we talk about the book, they always bring up Edward II. It is one of those things that you just have always known. I, I can't remember when I first heard it. It is one of those stories, <laughs> isn't it? I um, remember very clearly when I first heard it. I was you? at school. I, we... we um, school not far from you actually we were talking about that before we came on air um and I remember my teacher uh telling us that story and I can't have been more than eight years old <laughs> I think yeah this is quite questionable really. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say times have changed but I think I eagerly told my own children as soon yeah. as I got the chance you know <laughs> yeah well yeah it's it is it's one of those but maybe that's that was part of the point of it as well wasn't it it was it was such a captivating um, it's a titillating story, isn't it? it? Absolutely. It's gruesome and titillating and then it sticks in the memory and maybe that was part of the point. Now, in your book, you very helpfully and actually fascinatingly explain the physiological responses of a body to injury and disease. And that that got my, my mind wandering to hmm, interesting realms that I just now have to ask you about. Okay. Um, so let's get into, let's get into one, if not, the most gory ways to die because I have some burning questions about this which wasn't meant to be a pun but anyway the traditional form of execution for a male uh, traitor um, since the reign of that ever so forgiving king uh, Edward I of England that of being hung drawn and quartered or more accurately we would say drawn hung and quartered but anyway can you take us through so warning anyone now who doesn't want to hear this, <laughs> switch off for sure. a bit. Yeah. Can you take us through each of those ordeals and how the body reacts um, to that, to what's happening to it, please? So hanging and drawing quartering, as you say, is sort of a bit the wrong way around, but I don't think we could ever change it. No. <laughs> How could we? It's just stuck in our heads. Yeah. Um, every part of that uh, situation was done for a reason. It was, it was, often written in the actual sentence why as well so you could understand what was going on and why so the first part of it that they would be uh sort of slung maybe between a couple of horses and and and, and dragged along the ground right so their faces into the ground and that was to represent the fact that they couldn't um that they didn't have a place up in society looking up at everybody else they had to be looking down at the ground as they were being dragged along and you can imagine, of course, the impact that that would have externally if you were just dragged along the ground, wouldn't do, do wonders for your face. And then they would be taken and they would be hanged up high. And, and then it was it was called being in a place between heaven 
and earth because they weren't allowed they weren't uh, uh i can't think of the word it wasn't thought that they were um to be part of either of those places and that was what the, right. yeah, the hanging was they were up high they were in neither one place nor the other and it was written that they should be hanged uh, until they were nearly dead because that wasn't enough for them so they were then cut down and then the body parts that were taken out and burned in front of them were that was all to represent that those th those parts all represented something so one another thing we always remember is that they had the testicles uh, cut off and thrown in the fire and that was to represent the fact that they, they shouldn't be allowed to have any more children in this realm they shouldn't be able to procreate uh the, the bowels would be taken out because that was in in their belly that was where the the uh treason was was kept and and, and <laughs> brewed if you like a heart cut out then because that was that would represent the fact that the the treason was within them and within their heart that that was what they wanted to do to the king or the country and finally the head chopped off because that represented the fact that the, they had this idea that uh, that they were going to do bad things to the king and the country so all of these things represented something uh and then of course chopped up and sent to different places because that uh, would be a warning to others i get asked a lot at what point do you die yeah well this is one of the things when you hear that you think well you know it, the shock the blood yeah. loss the pain you know yes go on what point do you well, actually... i mean i mean my answer to that is that they're probably all different but and also it depends on the, the state that you go into it at because if they've been mm. beaten and held and everything else happening before that point they're probably not in a good position to be able to compensate for any um bodily insults i don't know how much you can compensate if your guts are pulled out in front of you and burned on a fire i mean you could you can cope for a while i guess with the cutting off of the testicles uh but but cutting out of the guts that's you know there's going to be an enormous amount of blood loss you're not going to last long in that situation you're going to um, lose all that blood that's going to your brain your brain needs it, it you're going to go things are going to go dark very quickly uh, i made a video about this on tiktok because i have a lot of um, these videos it's a little short videos that i make on tiktok and i had and it was really popular uh, and i had a lot of comments from mostly guys who had had a particular interest in this and they were saying that they'd been watching videos coming out of uh south america latin america where people had been tortured and it had been videoed and they'd been kept awake and and, and the, the, these, these these people had been kept awake during this process for a very long time so my assumption that you would not be able to cope with this and, and you would the shock and everything else would would set you off very quickly was wrong because these guys were being kept alive for a long time so that's made me question that and it's not something that I've been back and really studied in detail um but yeah I it's I think that as soon as you start cutting open someone's belly and pulling out of their very very vascular bowels the blood is going to flow and the blood is therefore not going to be going to your brain mm. and 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 I don't know if you've ever fainted but you, you go you go gray you go black nothing you're not aware of anything for very long mm. for, for long mm. I remember reading, I think it was when I was doing some research into peeps and it was just a bit of a side tangent from it, but that it, that, that there was a kind of prowess, mm, kind of, if you like, a ranking order of executioners and those who could keep their victims alive the longest were kind of the high ra ranking executioners. They were very skilled, if you, which is a horrible you know, way to think of it, but um, yeah you know obviously they're purposely 
trying to keep them alive. So this, I mean, the, the story, the representation of this, that and the other is to me clearly a very thin veneer for just wanting to be very cruel and put someone through a lot of pain and torture. But um, because I was thinking the, it's, it, that obviously there's the pain, but just the the horrific scenes that they're watching themselves, that the, the things that are happening to them, and they may have watched someone else go through it just before. You know, they, we like we know they like to make victims watch their other or watch other people go through it first. And um, yeah, I think uh, to to uh, I, I sort of reconcile it by imagining that that things turn off very fast, probably because I want to, not mm. <laughs> because I have any um, experience of it. Because mm. the gut, as well as having a very um, obviously uh, big, sorry bad words wrong um, yeah sorry a, a very uh, the, what do I, the blood supply you know it's got very mm-hmm. yeah but it's it's full of nerve endings as well isn't it which surely would send a message to the brain going ah <laughs> something's going on so you, you've got this situation where you've got the, the fight or flight responses happening so lots of catecholamines the adrenaline noradrenaline that sort of things flushing into the blood lots of glucose as well because there's an expectation that the, the muscles are going to be needed to be able to fight or run away and um and this, this, this would mean the heart rate would go up, the, you know, there's low saliva, uh, all these things would be happening. But then there's this other argument, and, and, and this would be a really tense situation, and you'd be expecting it, and you'd be like, you know, ready for this. But there's this argument, other argument that people become very serene, that this is like, okay, um, especially if you've got endorphins flowing about, that you're not going to feel as much, you know, people say when they have been stabbed or shot or uh, gone through trauma like that, that they don't feel it so much because they're shut off almost. Um, so, you know, there's almost two scenarios, isn't there, that, that one might go down. We're hoping for that and early death. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. So now for female traitors and all heretics, this is, this is what I do a lot of Tudor history. So burning at mm. the stake is a particular <laughs> form of execution, which comes up. Um, quite frequently of course as you imagine so and there there are accounts of people um remaining alive for how many long times when they're being burnt at the stake as as well so what's the process by which somebody actually dies from being um burned and again how, how considering the pain involved how can they remain alive for so long well i think it's the same scenario isn't it you've got either those you've got the the, the massive catecholamine adrenaline rush that's going to make you wanting to fight and fight and scream. Or you've got the other side where people say they're very, it's it's almost acceptance and serene. So there's one or two. The thing about burning is that there's a number of different things that happen with the body. I avoided this for a really long time. People ask me this on TikTok and I avoided it not because I, not because I thought it would be taken down by the app because that's that's probably going to happen. But also because I just felt like it was just a step too far. Like I'm pretty gory, but this just felt for me, it was this the worst. Mm. But there are different number, uh, different things that happen when you start burning a body in that way. So first of all, you've got the again, you've got the external. So the skin would would contract and split and out would come the fat and the muscle underneath. Um once you've gone through that skin layer, that feeling stops because that's where all the nerves are. You know, if you've ever had a really deep or big burn, 
mm. in the middle there you, you can't feel it because the nerves are gone it's on the edges where it's really painful um but once that's gone through then that pain will have gone but what happens to the muscles is that they all contract up and you get this um what would you say like a, a boxer pose because of all the contractions of the muscles and unless you're tied tied up that's what's going to happen to all the muscle but inside the body You've also got this problem of gases. So you've got noxious fumes, very, very hot gases going into the lungs. That's going to be the thing that um, that sort of cuts things off quite quickly. So the, not just the burning, but the hot gases and everything. If they go down into the lungs, the lungs will full of, fill up with fluid. And that's going to prevent oxygen getting in and out and you're going to become hypoxic. So that's that's a that's the sort of first thing that I would expect to happen. And I guess if somebody is lasting a long time, then they're obviously not obviously, then they may be being sort of burned from the feet up and and the gases aren't getting into their lungs. Mm. And I think that's what would that's why they would be staying awake for that long amount of time. But once once you start causing trauma to the muscles and everything in the legs, the muscles will start releasing things like uh, potassium and all these um, stuff that, that comes out of the cells if, if you crush them. So that will get into the blood and that will rush up to the heart. And as soon as you've got um, elements like that causing going around the heart, the heart will um, not be able to beat properly and it'll fibrillate and, 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 and you'd pass out from that. So it's like um, if you have somebody who, who's crushed, if you have a crushing crushing to a leg, actually pulling them out, whipping them out from underneath that thing really quickly without considering how you're going to deal with that is quite dangerous because again all of those things will rush into the bloodstream the potassium etc rush into the blood and that will rush to the heart and that'll cause problems with the with the heart so you've got that problem as well once the muscles start to break down um and then you've got this scenario where inside the cavity so inside the head and in the in the in the skull in the brain and in the in the um sort of hollow organs, I guess. Uh, they were just filled very quickly with um, with fluid. So lots of different things going on that could potentially uh, potentially kill you. But yeah, I, I, I think that it's probably if the gases aren't getting into your lungs quickly, then then things aren't um, aren't gonna things are gonna last a bit longer. Mm. Which is I suppose why you hear accounts of people sympathizers, supporters of the people being executed trying to make that fire as big as possible yeah know, as yeah. Possible. yeah sort of hang it hanging gunpowder packets around their necks and stuff like that yeah yeah okay torturous deaths behind us maybe um <laughs> it's, it's kind of at least at least straightforward in understanding you know people are purposely trying to in, uh, inflict painful protracted punishments for crimes on, on people but the other thing that comes across uh in your book is about and this, I was desperate to ask you about this. These, um, there's plenty of rather questionable, unpleasant treatments dished out by <laughs> physicians, especially for the people in privileged positions who could um, pay for these these people. So, can you tell us about some of these treatments that physicians um, were dispensing, and, and did any of them actually work? <laughs> so, a couple of years ago, when we were in um, we were in lockdown. And Donald Trump uh, said that he had COVID. One thing that he said was that he was surrounded by all the best physicians, that he was having um, all the best, most up-to-date um, experimental treatments. And, uh, and he was going to be OK because of that. And, and I was thinking, 
I'm not so sure about that, Donald, because I was thinking of Charles II, who said exactly who had exactly the same thing. And I feel like his his physicians actually did more harm than good. Then I think they finished him off. Because Charles II had a stroke, uh, he had a series of strokes and, and fits. And uh, and he was so we're all we're all aware of bleeding, aren't we? Bleeding is trying to um uh, balance the humours so taking off this fluid this blood uh, is trying to help that and uh, it often never really helps because you need all that blood inside you there's only one one or two medical scenarios where taking away blood is going to be helpful but the stewards they were really good at, at, at trying all sorts of things to balance the humours so what what they wanted to do was get fluid out so they would give emetics to make people vomit and purges to make things just flood out the other end they would raise blisters on the skin so so pressing hot irons onto the skin um would would raise up blisters and then the fluid from those blisters would could be drained off and uh, and i think that anybody in, in a privileged position privileged enough to be able to have physicians in the um in the times of the stuarts would end up a pretty grisly looking corpse sounds absolutely torturous it does in fact charles ii sat up at one point on his deathbed and apologized for taking so long to die oh wow there's <laughs> just so much going on so much stuff that they were doing to him and trying to trying to um get him along but yeah he apologized so look, look, could you explain to people who maybe don't understand the balancing of the humors what that means yeah so this is a very ancient idea this um primary idea of of the body and medicine is that it was made up of four humors um i'm gonna forget them now because i always do so the biles <laughs> and then actually, i can't remember i never oh, ever oh yeah the bile <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And uh, and that these were balanced and they were balanced um, also with the help of the stars as well. That came into it. But that was a different thing. But there's balance in the body and any sort of disease that um, that came along has caused an imbalance of those somewhere along the line. And so the best way to deal with that was to try and shift the fluids about. So bleeding and uh, obviously vomiting and purging and all the rest of it would, would help hopefully bring those all back in line. No. What was the head? I remember head shaving appears in a couple of people's yeah. head shaving. It does. I, I, do you know what? I've no idea. I can't. Yeah, because they did that to it. Like George III had it as well when he was going through his problems. And um, Queen Anne as well. She went through that. So it was obviously of the time. But head shaving, I'm not so sure, unless it was just to get at the skin to be able to, uh, to, 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 to get those. Um, uh blistering agents onto the skin so it wasn't just irons it was also um there's a beetle that produces a very blistering chemical um that's, that's put onto the skin and and causes that um so but i mean i guess there's other places you don't just have to shave the heads to be able to get to that um yeah i kind of have to go and find out about that one mm, I, uh, it just, I, I find it amazing with the humors because the, the humor that that um basis for medicine is I mean, that goes back to ancient Greece, doesn't it? I think the, the humours. And yet it almost appears to someone now not medically trained that to to bleed somebody, as a, as an example, when they're in any kind of um, state of disease or, you know, less than good health, that that would be a really daft thing to do. And yet, so, but it must have made logical sense for a very long time for them to have kept doing it 
and we're talking about hundreds of years aren't we yeah yeah it's and it's really really hard not to look at things like that and think what yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to get your head around a lot of the things that were done and, and I guess there are things that we do now aren't there that people will look back at and go what oh undoubtedly <laughs> explain that undoubtedly <laughs> I do we just to... we just believe the person before us that told us because they're eminent physicians or surgeons and they know best yeah I always wonder whether there's a, uh, especially, you know, when you look at someone like Charles II, whether he was a victim of people needing to do something. We need to do something and something can be anything, basically. Um, Yeah, I feel a bit like that about Charles II in the way that they, 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 there were loads of doctors and they were all coming up with different ideas and different, you know, they all had to be, maybe they were all vying to be the one who made him sit up again. Yeah, they would have been, they would have been, rewarded yes indeed indeed. yeah yeah. there's one more person if I may that I'd like to ask you about before we um move on to the questions from patrons um Princess Charlotte because I feel like Princess Charlotte she's starting to be talked about much more now which is great um but her her death led to basically a succession crisis which ended up with um Victoria being born and luckily, I suppose, for everyone involved, surviving and becoming queen. But her death, could you explain what happened there? Princess yeah. Charlotte uh, went to term with a uh, a boy. And when he was born, she, she a few hours after she was, he was born, sorry, she started to have breathing problems and uh, and she died quite quickly. And it's it's always been written that she died at hemorrhaging. And there was an autopsy done at the time, and that that said that there was a little bit of a blood clot inside, um, but there wasn't written that there was a lot of blood externally. So that's why uh, more recently some uh, obstetrician gynaecologists have looked at that and said, well, it doesn't really add up because you'd expect if somebody hemorrhaged that there'd be a lot of blood. Um, so what else might be going on? And the, the the fact that she was uh, that she she had breathing problems suggested that she might have had a pulmonary embolism, which is not uncommon clotting uh, with pregnancies. Um, that pulmonary embolisms were not pulmonary emboli, sorry, were not recognised until I think it was the eighteen seventies. So it wouldn't have been known of at that point. But it may well have happened um, that she had a pulmonary embolism. So this blood clot forms somewhere else in the body and it travels up through the blood and it gets into those vessels, those blood vessels within the lungs that um, that are really crucial to getting the blood in and out and therefore getting the oxygen in and out of the, of the blood. And um, if you have a big pulmonary embolism, it can kill you very fast. Um, and so that's that might have been what happened to Charlotte. Obviously, it's, it's still speculation. We still don't know. Other things might come to light in the future you know the um, technologies or ideas around um death surrounding births but the child unfortunately didn't survive either so we were left with uh yeah as you say with a succession problem after george the fourth died yeah we could get into been shot on a completely different rate but we won't because <laughs> we're talking uh, deaths today but um right so we're going to end our main part of our chat now and move on to the patrons questions but before we do um Let's take the opportunity to tell everyone else where they can find you, what you're working on. I happen to know it's another book as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Tell, us, tell us about it and where people can find you because you've also mentioned TikTok. So. Yeah. So one of the one of the places I hang around a lot is TikTok because I just love telling little stories. Really short formats, really helpful. So TikTok, I'm at Susie Edge. Um, and I, I chat there as well. I do have an Instagram. I think it's at Suze.edge. 
annoyingly <laughs> this has got to be different hasn't it and on twitter at Susie edge and i have a youtube channel where i put the sort of longer form versions of those stories on there as well all at Susie edge um and i have a website called susieedge.com but uh yeah what i'm working on next is moving away slightly from the monarchs and looking at different um different people from history and from around the world as well because obviously we've been playing about in britain so I'm, I'm I'm writing a book called Vital Organs, and it's looking at uh, histories of the world's most famous body parts. So it's stories like Napoleon's penis and Van Gogh's ear, <laughs> and uh, Marie Antoinette's teeth, and uh, Marie Curie's Marie Slodowska Curie, sorry's um, bone marrow. So stories like that, um, where really their their body parts have been immortalised. And I'm having far too much fun writing that just now. <laughs> and that's out in September. I think. That's coming out in September. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you ever so much, Susie. That's been a pleasure. Thank you.